0: Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management
1: on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. It is all about team tech trust. Start with AnnexWealth.com. Our number is 262-786-6363. Big show today. We're going to cover a bunch. And then a little bit later, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about the Wisconsin 9-11 Memorial in Kewaskum. It is quite a project please make sure to hang out for that. That's in about 20 minutes. Also, can you become a 401k millionaire? Now, this is one of those things, if you're an investor and you've been in the game for a while, this is a segment that you'll want to send to your kids or maybe your grandkids because it can be done. So that's coming up today on Money Talk. Dave Spano is here. Dave, hey, happy end of election week, huh?
2: Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, it, it feels like it was a long time ago, but it was just on Tuesday that we had the U.S. midterm elections. And, you know, the reason why it's important because politics and economics do intersect and I think people have to understand will there be any policy changes and and that's really what we want to talk about today Mark is uh, do we see any policy changes and what this means
3: for investors I think no doubt about that I think just looking back a little bit on this show from this summer and the months that were leading up to that we predicted volatility we got volatility you have low volumes during the summer months October is naturally a pretty volatile month, and then the midterm elections, all a pretty perfect storm, Derek, for some volatility in the last couple of weeks investors felt it certainly our listeners felt it but we were prepared for that derek and we took some actions in advance of what we saw in some volatility
4: yeah a couple, a couple of weeks ago we took about five percent out of our short-term bond exposure and invested in, in u.s equities through actively managed funds that we think are exceptionally well run in addition to that i think you know the for me the lesson from the election is that because you now have a divided you know they have the house on the Democratic side and the Senate on the Republican side. The tax cuts, to my mind, are largely safe, which is very important for corporate profits and for personal consumption spending, which we think is going to lead to a really strong holiday season. And so you talk about
2: uh, fiscal policy, and I think that, you know there's a number of policies we have to look at. Fiscal policy would probably be the most important because you know over the years, we have transferred for monetary policy and others. In other words, what the Fed is doing to fiscal policy, and that is what the government can do, particularly on the budget, tax planning being part of that. Uh, I don't think there's any chance that the Senate would go along with raising taxes, despite the fact that the Democrats wanted to do that.
4: No, no, I don't. And in fact, even in the president's rather uh, truculent uh, press conference, to say the least, um, he, did, he did allow to the fact of perhaps adjusting taxes for some of the higher wage earners in order to broaden the tax cut and and more positively impact the middle class but whether that happens or not we'll see because obviously that involves a negotiation The, the house democrats are obviously you know looking at investigations and they're talking about all these other things but ultimately they have to work for the people and we'll see how this negotiation proceeds and dave kind of want to take you back to your question about what does this mean
3: for investors right now So you look at policy, fiscal policy and monetary policy. You look at different sectors of the market and different mutual funds and ETFs that are out there. You look at things like health care, you know, the Affordable Care Act you look at tax policy and things like that. What could investors look at right now? Is there a sea change in, in sectors that are going to do better than others given
4: the results of the election? Well, we you know, Mark, we've used healthcare care as a tactical position for really as long as I've been at Annex, primarily because of the demographics and the, and, the, and the level of innovation that the U.S. healthcare community is able to generate. And with the ACA seemingly safe as well, perhaps there'll be some tweaks to it. That's certainly good for uh, health care insurers, uh, drug companies and the like. There may be talk about, you you know, limiting the increases in prescription drug prices. But the healthcare sector is obviously a big winner this time.
2: And, you know, the other sector that there's a lot of conversation and there could be some consensus on both sides of the aisle would be consensus with infrastructure spending.
4: No, that seems to be something that, that both parties agree on. I mean, I saw some surveys this week. They're talking about a 20 to $30 billion infrastructure package. The difficulty investing in that theme, though, is that that takes, tends to take a long time to develop. So, you know, you could look at things like cement companies and logistics companies and the like. It's a theme we will explore, but right now I don't really have any conviction on that theme yet, but we'll obviously do some work on it. So there's a lot more that we can talk about when we come back, Dan, and we certainly have to talk about
2: deregulation and trade and the, and the effect that that could have on different sectors.
1: Thank you, Dave. By the way, Navigating the Markets is coming up Tuesday. This is kind of a post-election look at the markets and, and really beyond this is going to be our third year. It is a very popular event. If you like to talk about this kind of stuff, learn about this kind of stuff, it's called Navigating the Markets. Happens at the Fister. We've got some room. We can, we can reconfigure things a little bit at the Fister. We can add some people in. If you're interested, you need to do that at AnnexWealth.com. Just look for Navigating the Markets. Again, that's Navigating the Markets, and it happens on Tuesday. This is Money Talk on WTMJ.
0: Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ.
1: And we are back. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. It is Saturday. It is November 10th. It is Team Tech Trust. That's how we roll. AnnexWealth.com. Our number is 262-786-6363. Still to come on the show and ask Annex segment, we're always open for those at AnnexWealth.com slash ask. One of the questions, really interesting, is there a best time of the day to buy a stock? That's on the way, but we've got more to go, Dave. Yeah. So, you know, when we went
2: to break, Danny, we were talking about potential of ideas of where to invest based on what has happened in the political scenario, and I think that's what's important Mark, is what do you take away from this and we have always said, don't invest your politics, and we've seen that before, I can tell you those people who were on the far right thought that when President Obama became president that they would they would pull all their money out of the market well obviously that was not the right move there were people on the far left who said when Trump became president that they were going to pull all their money out of the market, neither one of those were right, fundamentals at the end of the day matter more than politics
3: and the good things is most people threaten that and never follow through on it. I mean, it, it's an ideological way of trying to respond to something that is not favorable to you. But you know, we never advise that because it's the hand that you're dealt. Politics is the hand that you're dealt. Fiscal policy, monetary policy, all those things are things that you have to digest and put into your portfolio. And a lot of times people then take their emotion, Derek, and they'll they'll invest their emotion because they're against what happened in the election or they're for what happened in the election. They either get overly positive or overly negative, and emotion comes into it. So individual investors sometimes fail where institutional investors do better because of the fact that we oftentimes are able to remove the emotion.
4: Well, you know, one thing that I think is sort of an anchor to our investment committee is we always talk about this fear and greed index. Well, in two weeks before the election, the fear and greed index was down to five, which meant there was a lot of fear in the marketplace but that creates opportunities. Right now, the fear and greed index has moved up. It's a 29, still a fairly low level. And we're, you know, we're now building on another great quarter, or we saw 25% earnings growth for the third quarter in a row. So the S&P on a PE basis is cheaper now than it was at the beginning of the year. We now have oil prices down 20%. Well, that's a tax cut for folks. And just wait until they see their tax returns in April when they find out that that tax cut really did have an effect on their after-tax income. Just go back to that fear and greed index for a little bit. I mean, we- We throw numbers out. It was a 5. It
3: was a 29. Put that in context of where the spectrum is. It's a 0 to 100. So at a 5, it's extremely fearful. Yeah, 5 was the lowest number we'd seen on that index in two years. And so then you look at that as being something of a contraindicator, thinking about when it's fearful to be greedy, to be putting money into the market when there's a lot of fear in the market.
4: Well, that's absolutely right. It ebbs and flows and, and it, often driven by headlines. And as we talk about later in the day, a lot of what happens with stocks happens overnight. And what happens during the day really should be ignored because it's mostly noise and it, it just begrudges those who, who sit on, t- on CNBC all day and, and petificate about the daily gyrations, but lose focus on what the real trends are.
2: So let's talk about focus for a second. And here we are in earnings season. Earnings season, again, has been really good. What are the numbers that we've seen so far?
4: Well, 87% of the companies in the S&P 500 report, as I mentioned earlier, that average EPS growth of 25%, which is a stellar number. Uh, We're looking for 20% uh, in the fourth quarter. I mean, the key risk, something that we're definitely going to be focused on as we go into 2019, though, is what's going to happen to margins. Because obviously, margins benefited from the tax cut. But you know we're starting to see higher interest costs, we're starting to see wage growth and so on, which we believe supports our tactical position in consumer discretionary stocks. But it's definitely something that we need to pay attention to, because next year, fiscal stimulus will start to fade, will be anniversarying very strong numbers, and you'll start hearing from people, well, growth has peaked, earnings have peaked, and so on. But as I said before on this show, just because it peaks doesn't mean it's not growing, it's just not growing as fast. And as long as we're building on reasonable valuations, that's a good opportunity for equity investors.
2: And that's a really good point. So- so you know, we've seen 20-plus growth quarter after quarter, and now looking into 2019, that may be sub-double digits, but it's still a positive number, and I think people should keep that in mind as we go forward.
4: Yeah, if you think about it, if the PE multiple just stays the same next year and earnings come in at 9% up, that's a 9% return. One other number that you pulled out of there, Derek,
3: was wage inflation. That was important. Because I think as people look at this now, as the economy, GDP, is driven by consumer spending, when you have wage growth, like we're seeing right now upwards of around 3%, if you're getting people to be paid more for their efforts, are they spending more as we get into the Christmas season? I think that'll be important to watch as well.
1: Good, good point. Good point. It's uh, 1021 at WTMJ. It's Money Talk. When you get a chance, head to AnnexWealth.com. And sign up for Axiom, which is our free weekly newsletter. Lots of great information. It's very casually written. It's designed to kind of reach out and and, uh, kind of just impart some knowledge. And we work really hard on it. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Sign up for the Axiom.
0: Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ.
1: This is a special conversation. We're going to talk about the Wisconsin 9-11 Memorial. Kawaskam remembers. And our special guest in the studio, Gordon Haberman, president of the organization, and Jerry Gosa, vice
5: president. Gordon, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having us. Jerry? Likewise. Glad to be here. Gordon, what's your background? Retired businessman. Unfortunately, on 9-11-2001, my daughter um, happened to be on the 92nd floor of the North Tower in New York City and was killed.
1: Andrea's name is one that we heard immediately afterwards. It, it's been a long and I'm sure very painful process that's led you
5: to this place, but could you explain what this project is? While well, on a trip to New York, to present to the uh, 9-11 Museum out there Andrea's artifacts that were recovered. I was made aware that Port Authority of New York had set aside approximately 2,000 pieces of the Trade Center to be distributed for memorials throughout the country. We were then given a tour of the hangar out of JFK Airport, which contained not only the pieces that they were letting out, but also all the wreck, fire engines, uh, railway cars, bike racks, impact steel, whatever is in the museum now was kept at this hangar. We were out there with the curator of the museum, a survivor of both the 93 and 2001 attacks, a welder. We were going through the rubble. The welder went past it and he said, I cut that piece of steel. When we came home from uh, New York, I had contacted my friend here, Jerry Gosa, who was Andrea's teacher, and just wondered if there was some interest in bringing an artifact back to Kewaskam. That set in motion a whole series of things. How big is the beam?
6: Well, the piece of beam is approximately about five and a half feet long, almost 6 feet long. It stands about 38 inches off the ground and then it's about 19 inches wide on like the I-beam. They call it an H-beam, but most people call it an I-beam. And it's approximately an inch and a half thick, and it weighs in at 2,200 pounds. We brought the steel back to Kiyawaskam. They were concerned that we set it down there that it might tip over and hurt somebody. And I said, well, you're walking through a parking lot and there's a car there. You're not worried about the car rolling over on you. I mean, this is going to stay put. After Gordon contacted me and thought about asked me about what I thought about us getting the steel, it took a while before we actually headed out to get the piece of the steel to bring it back because of all the restrictions on being bonded and then driving into New York City was a, was a, not something to be taken very lightly. We actually had to find somebody to help us get the steel out of New York so that we wouldn't have to have these this million dollars of you
5: know insurance. That friend, uh, early on in the deconstruction process, I was fortunate to meet the superintendent who was taking apart the Trade Center. His name is Charles Vetchers. He headed up the 6,000-man crews that were volunteers working down at the Ground Zero site. Him and I had become good friends, and I I reached out to him and I said, Charlie, uh, we've been awarded this piece of steel, however, uh, no one can afford the insurances to go to JFK and uh, get it. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll get it out of there. The steel was first trucked to Charlie's uh, hometown in Pennsylvania. Charlie then trucked it to Cleveland, and then Jerry and I drove out to Cleveland, and uh, we drove it back to Kewaskam. So, what do you drive that back in? Well,
6: Gordon sacrificed his truck that day yeah. to do that. <laughs> and a, and a U haul.
5: U-Haul we trailer. were
6: probably very close to being Illegal. way overweight <laughs> on,
1: on every area of that. You know, I got a feeling that had you been pulled over, whatever mm-hmm. law enforcement uh, that did that would have waved you past right. because there were so many victims of that day, many of them were first responders. And,
6: Definitely. you know, and the thing that was really, it was like people knew. You know, we didn't have any signs on the steel, and we're going down the highway, and we stop at a gas station. People come over, and they want to take pictures. I mean, they knew what it was. You know, they ask us, is that what I think it is? They go, yeah, it, it definitely is. So it was... Uh I remember when Gordon first called me up then and said, hey, do you, do you want to, what are you doing this weekend? you want to go out and get the steel? And it was like, yeah, hell yes, yes. I'd uh, I be honored to uh, go with you and uh, help bring the steel back to Wisconsin.
1: So tell me about the current status of the Wisconsin 9-11 Memorial, Kewaskam Remembers. Right.
6: The piece of steel sits right on Highway 45, just a little bit north of the intersection of Highway 45 and 28 east in, in Kewaskam, right across from Miller's Furniture Store, and just past what we call the Coffee Corner. And it sits um, there next to two big signs that declare that this is the future home of the 9-11 Memorial, the Wisconsin 9-11 Memorial.
1: Is there a way, if if anybody wants to help, finish the project?
6: Uh, We have a website, and there are ways to hit a button there on the website to go ahead and get information about making donations. Our web address is wisconsin911memorial.com. It's been very heartwarming to see all the donations coming in from just all these different areas in the state here, and the notes that people have written when they send in a check and things like that is, you know, they all remember where they were, and, and they, you know, God bless you for doing this, and thank you for doing this, and what a wonderful thing that you're doing. So it's uh, very heartwarming to see the, the response and the support of the, uh,
1: you know, the citizens of the state. Gordon, you lost your daughter. Yes, sir. Or... Um, The wound never heals, has this helped?
5: I think that going forward, it's now been 17 years, and people forget that the country changed that day. However, what my wife and I also witnessed, and what we intend to portray in the memorial, is that this country came together.
1: Gordon Hopperman is president mm. of the Wisconsin 9-11 Memorial. Kawaskum remembers. Jerry Gosa is vice president. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in today. Thank oh, you very thank much for you. having us. Uh, best part of my week was uh, meeting those gentlemen. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. Uh, the By the way, the Veterans Day parade starts at 11 o'clock. Because of construction downtown, um, it has a slightly different route. But So just keep that in mind. But 11 o'clock, I think Barry will probably have a little bit more about that. In fact, it is time to get caught up. It is 10.30 at WTMJ. Time to go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center with Barry Nelson.
0: From simple investments to stock advice. Back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on
1: WTMJ. If you're listening to this show, chances are you've been investing for a while. So this piece is something to share with your kids or even your grandkids because they are in the position where they could become 401k millionaires. According to Fidelity, in the third quarter of 2018, the number of people with a million dollars or more in an employer plan is up 41% from a year earlier and is 10 times higher a decade ago. We're going to break it down. Joining me is Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services at Annex. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Hey, that is fantastic
7: news. It can be done. It absolutely can be done. When you look at retirement, 401K plans are going to be the biggest source for most people of retirement income, so this is really good news for everyone, I think. And that figure only
1: represents Fidelity. Let's assume that if somebody was active in a 401K, they were accumulating
7: significant assets, so everybody can do this. Yeah, and the Fidelity's huge. They have more plans than anyone, so they are actually a pretty good source for, for judging this, and the people who are accumulating assets whether you have a million or not quite a million, the moral of the story is you can get there. It just takes time. It's funny. This is where I turn into a dad because I've got a
1: 26-year-old and a 25-year-old. Both are in their first jobs, and I've done the typical thing. Are you in your 401K? I mean, because it just makes sense. So one is he doesn't fully understand it, which is fine. He can figure that out later. Sure. The other is he's a cop, so he's a 403B. But the big thing is is get in early and stay doing everything.
7: Yeah, there's no question. I think people overthink exactly how much do I need to put in, where exactly should I invest my money, and the reality is just get in. Get in at some rate. I mean, there are rules of thumb. You should be saving somewhere between 10 and 15% of your pay. I always tell people when they're starting, though, if you're just getting into this, you want to be careful about going overboard just because you don't want to have sticker shock and then dial it back to nothing. You do want to start with something. My rule of thumb is if it doesn't hurt at least a little bit, then you're not saving enough. That's a good place to start, and from there, you can work toward that 10% or the 15% overall goal that people suggest. Well, it might be the initial hurt. You then forget about it, right? Because it is that pay-yourself-first thing. There's no question. You, f- you forget about it very quickly. I mean, I was talking to a group, and we were saying, you know, over time, you get these raises, and if you look back and say, what I was making five years ago, wow, there's no way I could live on that. Well, sure you could. You were living on it five years ago, so yeah. it can be done. So many things come out of our paycheck now. You've got health insurance, taxes... this other stuff this is just one more thing that comes out of there before you even get a chance to spend it on something else.
1: This is what you should show your kids or your grandkids is is that average balances were $400,000 if you were in a plan for 15 years. Again, that's the average. 10-year investors had $305,000. Millennials that were in five years had an average balance of $82,000. And same thing for 403B levels at records, too. So it happens. You just got to get
7: in. You got to stay at it. Yeah, I like that millennial number because it shows, you know, over five years, you've got an average $82,000 balance. That is pretty significant. It is. I usually tell people it's going to take a long time before you see something meaningful. Well, five years isn't that long and 82 grand's pretty meaningful, if you ask me. What jumped
1: out at me for these 401k investors is, number one, they stayed the course. They invested in equities. They didn't panic. They kept investing even when they did things like buying homes or having children. They used the power of the match. And then they saved at or beyond 15%. That's still tough. That's a big reach. But do at least at least to the match.
7: You always say that. Right. And even if you don't have a match, people say, well, I'm not going to bother with the 401k because I don't have a match. What are your alternatives, then, is what I always ask those people, Are you so you're not going to save in this, that means you're going to save somewhere else, right? And then where else are you going to save? Even if your company does not match your contribution, chances are you're getting the buying power of a huge group of people. Your 401k is still probably the best place to start. A, it's the easiest thing. You decide how much you want. It comes out of your paycheck. You don't need to go set up an account and fill out all this paperwork like you do with an individual account. But the other thing is it's consistent. It's very easy to do and you need to start somewhere. For sure, if you have a match, you've got to get to the match. No question about that. But even if you have a match and it goes up to four or five percent, six percent, that doesn't mean you need to stop there. And like you said, these people didn't stop there. Most of them were were in excess of 10% over time. I don't want people to be discouraged by that number and think, oh man, 12%, there's just no way I can do that, so don't bother. No, 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 start at four, start at five, and slowly work your way up. If you do 1% a year and it takes you five years to get there, Whatever, that's better than doing nothing for the next five years, right? I think there's a lot of hope in these numbers and it's really encouraging and and helping people understand you can do this. So the moral of the story? Start as early as you can. Pick a number, like I said, that hurts at least a little bit and then slowly over time, work your way up to a more meaningful savings rate. And over time, it's going to make a huge difference. Again, look at that number from the millennials. Five years, average 82 grand. If you have nothing in your account right now and you think to yourself, five years from now, I could have 82 grand. That's a pretty sweet thing to think about. And even if it's not 82, say it's 50. Well, that's 50 grand more than you had five years before. So this stuff does take time. You got It's a little bit of a patience game, but over time, the numbers, I think, are very hard to argue with. If you're an employer interested in 401k plan, that's what you do. The big thing that we do differently from most of our peers is we engage very heavily with plan participants. So the employees, we try to get them into this because we look at this kind of stuff that you and I are talking about right now, every day. And we see that it is possible. And we love to see people who we've been working with for five, six, seven years, say, hey, I'm so glad you got me into this, right? So that's a big thing. If you don't have a plan and you're trying to figure out what to do, as we approach the end of the year, there are some regulatory requirements that you gotta be careful about and starting and how much you're gonna be able to do. We help people try to figure that stuff out all the time. It's different for every employer. It's good to have a, a professional resource who can help you sort it all out.
1: Our director of retirement plan services at Annex is Tom Parks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ, where it's about team, tech, and trust. Our website, AnnexWealth.com, our number, 262-786-6363. It's time for Ask Annex. Mark Oswald and Dirk Felski hanging out. Got a couple for you. You ready? I'm ready. looking straight at you, Derek. Okay, I'm ready. All right, our first one comes from Peter. Is there a better time during the day to buy stock? I've heard that toward the end of the trading day is better, but
4: why? Well, that's, that's actually a really good question, but one thing I've found just studying this recently was if you actually bought the S&P 500 at the opening every day and sold it at the close, this year you would have lost about 9%. However, if you bought the S&P at the close and sold it at the open, you would have made 9%. So what that tells me is trading during a day is very treacherous. What we typically do at Annex is we hold off on, on trading individual stocks and even ETFs until you know the first hour is over. The first hour tends to be more volatile, more directionless. But the real smart money comes in at the close.
1: He's looking right at me, volatile, directionless, because I bought right (laughs) at the beginning, and I get spanked for some reason.
3: I think you're volatile, I'm directionless, (laughs) something like that. Let's take
1: another question. Michael asks, I know I should rebalance my portfolio, but how often? I know quarterly isn't a good idea anymore, and, you know, I was raised, or I was, you know, early when I was a young pup, my mutual fund company always said, well, it's the end of the quarter, it's time to rebalance.
3: Well, uh, you know, a lot of people, historically, money managers and investment houses, have used the calendar to trigger rebalancing signs. So you got to the end of the year, let's rebalance. Got to the end of the quarter, let's rebalance. We think it can be more intuitive than that, Derek. And so in our investment committee, we're always looking at opportunities for us to rebalance.
4: Right. We're we're looking for deviations between asset classes or stock performance. And I think the other reason a lot of advisors rebalance based on the calendar is so they can fit it into their tea time schedules. Well, that's uh, that's true (laughs) as 12. And the other thing that goes with it is this
3: concept of window dressing. And don't be lost on that because a lot of mutual fund managers will rebalance their portfolios at the end of a quarter to put names in the portfolio that did well during the quarter that they didn't own. And that's just another way of kind of trying to gussy up your portfolio at the end of the quarter. Don't be fooled by that.
1: Ask Annex, here's one from Thomas. Would there be any benefit consolidating investment accounts to one wealth management organization knowing that one is a brokerage account with only blue chip stocks of Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft? Is there such a thing?
4: Well, there, there can be. I mean, I've seen accounts like that. I mean, the, the way I look at it is in order for us to, to really evaluate the total risk tolerance of to a client, what their objectives are, what their exposures are, and, and remember, we're trying to manage risk here first, not return. You've got to look at the whole picture because, for example, I might choose to add a, an active mutual fund that is loaded up with the very stocks they own individually, and that's not diversifying their exposure at all. Well, so I draw the distinction between accounts and households when you look at should you put your money into a single account
3: with a single strategy that's different than looking at a single house like an investment firm that has multiple accounts with different strategies that maybe work well together
1: here's the question i really want to get to and i I think because it's sort of in my situation with two young sons who have their first job and are beginning to invest jerry asks my daughter has her first post-college job i'm urging her to start investing however is she buying at the
4: top well, my, I have a daughter, Claire, who lives in Los Angeles. She's in a fairly similar position. What I've told her over and over again is I want her to take 15% of her after-tax income and invest it at the same time she gets her paycheck, preferably have it deducted. That way she learns to budget while at the same time saving, and she's dollar-cost averaging because she'll buy more when the market's low and, and buy less when the market's high. Well, first of all, congratulations, Jerry, for
3: encouraging your child to do that because it's a really healthy way to begin to build for your retirement. And when you're a young person just turning out, don't worry about highs of the markets and lows of the market. Your biggest asset is time. And the time that you're in the market is the most valuable tool. So put money away every other Friday and let it grow.
1: You know, I've got two sons, like you have two sons, Mark. I yeah. And I am just such a dad sometimes because I'm, I'm questioning them all the time. I talked earlier in the show to Tom about this. but. Are you involved in it? And and they have no idea what they're in, but at least they're in something. They probably got put in a target date fund.
3: Well, what's really nice right now is a lot of plans, the fiduciaries of a lot of plans, the employers themselves, have taken the time to look at asset selection a lot differently than they did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. You can build a really nice portfolio in most 401k plans, and we help our clients do that.
1: There you go. AnnexWealth.com slash ask. We get a lot of questions. We try to get to them all either on the radio show or uh, directly back to you. So you can do that at AnnexWealth.com
0: get professional help with your portfolio. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ.
1: It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ, Team Tech, Trust, AnnexWealth.com is where you can find us, 262-786-6363. So we are post-election. We know what the house is going to look like and it's different. It is different, and I think one of the most important things that we're going to
2: watch is the change in the House and Ways Committee. Uh, That chairperson will be Maxine Waters, and she is from California and has talked a lot about a standardized conduct of care. Uh, And as you know, Mark, we have been talking about this forever, that there should be a change in the standard of care, but it should not be standardized across all advisors.
3: Well, there's a problem. I mean, this problem roots itself back to the Dodd Frank regulation in 2008, and then, of course. President Obama and uh, the Labor Secretary at that time. Thomas Perez. Thomas Perez and, and trying to put together a standardized fiduciary standard of care for investment advisors that covered everybody.
2: But let me just jump in right there because he is a head of the DNCC now and so yeah. that is his job when he left as, as the head of the DOL he has become now the head of the DNCC so I do think there's going to be a push by the Democrats to talk about this again.
3: Isn't it amazing I mean how long this has been going on because we're now entering 2019 and Dodd-Frank was in 2008. So 11 years we've been having this conversation about a standard of care, and there's no more clarity to me today than there was in 2008. And let's explain what the changes are. So the standard of care has always been that you had salespeople, You had people that were stockbrokers, insurance agents, people who sell mutual funds, and they had this suitability standard of care. In other words, at the time of the sale, the investment that they were trying to sell to you had to be suitable for you based on what they knew about you and what they knew about the product. That duty then ended as soon as the paperwork was dry. So the alternate to that has been the fiduciary standard of care. The fiduciary standard of care, as most of our listeners know, is an ongoing and forever relationship of care, which is that you have to act at all times in the best interest of the client, and you have to disclose and manage conflicts of interest so what they try to do is say everybody should be a fiduciary what what people outside the belt line sometimes in washington don't realize Is that in places like Milwaukee and Chicago and in the Midwest there's all kinds of different financial firms that are out there they focus so much on Wall Street that they forget that people who work with financial advisors here in our communities are sometimes people who work for brokerage firms sometimes they're insurance agents and sometimes they're real registered investment advisors that are fiduciaries to paint them all with the same brush is really difficult for the consumer to understand who is who if an advisor is an advisor is an advisor regardless of the standard of care that they owe to the client then how does the client know how do they decide who they want to work with so i think that this is potentially a half a step backwards again if maxine waters is going to try to paint that same brush and make us all fiduciaries again i think from the consumer standpoint it fails the consumer because there's lack of clarity to the consumer
2: now when you say we i mean i want our listeners to understand there certainly is a difference that between of being a fiduciary and having a suitability standard of care annex is a fiduciary.
3: Annex is a fiduciary, and and the easiest way, and people have heard me say this now for years, is when you're looking at trying to make the decision about who you want to work with or who you want to continue to work with, is having the conversation. This is a fair question, folks. It's a fair question to go to the person and say, are you a fiduciary? And a lot of times you're going to get yes, and, and the verbal yes is different than the written yes. For us, we always felt it was important to put it in writing for our clients. So our contract, paragraph one, starts with, we are a fiduciary. Let's get it out of the way. Let's say this is the relationship that we're going to have. We are going to be a fiduciary to you in this relationship. As a fiduciary, we owe you the following obligations. That's a fair relationship, and and it's not so much a contract as it is an agreement. In other words, we agree to treat you in this capacity. You're agreeing to be treated in this capacity. People who operate under the suitability standard standard or people that are called hybrids or dual registrants. Those people are going to try to hide behind the fiduciary name while acting under the fiduciary standard and that's where the problem really lies in this regulation.
1: Can the marketing guy jump in here real quick because I know how we as marketers would probably twist that but marketers will say of course we. Operate in your best interest. Of course we would. That's
3: the problem. Well, and you know, when you ask people, when you go out on the street and you say, is your advisor a fiduciary, is your fi- advisor acting in your best interest, some 80% of people who respond to those surveys say yes, when in fact, the people who are non-fiduciaries far out past the people who are really fiduciaries to the tune of about eight to one. So it's people's perception of the relationship versus the reality of their relationship are two different so, so things. So
2: let me just offer, there are a number of answers here, and one of them is to regulate what you call yourself, and so not everybody is a wealth advisor or a wealth manager. That's one. A second, and, and you alluded to it, is some type of fiduciary oath that talks about transparency and good faith and loyalty. Have them sign that, and we do that with our
3: documents. We certainly do, and-, and, and this has been well-intentioned regulation from the beginning. I think it's well-intended. It just has been mismanaged and, and unfortunately, has, has caused more confusion with consumers than it has provided clarity.
1: Mark Oswald, uh, Dave Spano. That is it for Money Talk this week. Annex Wealth Management start at AnnexWealth.com.
0: Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.